Welcome, family. This is Kingdom in Context. I'm Sean, your host. I just want to thank everyone for being here. And we're going to be picking up our study into First Enoch, I think a textual study guide. We're looking at chapters 11 through 15 tonight. So I just want to thank everyone for joining me again. Everyone's in live chat already. Appreciate you guys. Um, some, some familiar names. Uh, just love seeing you guys here week in, week out. Scott my Vickers back, GR Cleve, Brenda Richard, Firmament Liquor, Colleen Marie, Brenda L, Philip Henry, Country Fun, Peggy D. Welcome back, everybody. Master Soup is back. Discerning Watchman. Welcome back. Caleb is back. Appreciate everybody that's here. And um, Miss Vicky Lott's back. Welcome, sister. And tonight, uh, we're going to pick back up into our study in the contextual study guide. So as you guys have heard me talking about for the past year, we're working on 100 plus books in scripture with color-coded commentary and supporting scriptures as a complete study guide. Um, but for you know, just for now, in the meantime, since I'm not completed with the massive project, uh, we published um, the book of First Enoch by itself. And so this is this is probably what you saw at the beginning of the video tonight. And this is what we're actually going to be reading through um, in a PDF version as we, we go through the slides tonight, as we go through chapters 11 through 15. So um, big shout out to uh, uh, Tom with TK Creative and Drew with uh, Big Pond Creative. Um, I think it's Green Pond, Green Pond Creative. Um, a big shout out to those guys for helping us uh, make this reality um, as far as all the formatting, the, the wonderful illustrations, and uh, just all the time it took to go and, and make this a reality. So hopefully it's a blessing to you. And the an update real quick on all the people that have donated in order to receive one of these as a gift. Um, we just started getting them today from the publisher and they're coming in waves, unfortunately. I thought they were just going to send me my bulk order. Uh, like I wanted, but they're apparently they're they're coming in waves. So we're just gonna uh, start shipping out the first amount that we got um, to those who um, you know first come first serve concept. Those who donated first a few weeks back, start shipping those out tomorrow. So be excited if you're waiting on one. It's uh, I'm gonna start that process tomorrow, and we're supposed to receive all of them that have been ordered in this first round uh, by the end of tomorrow night. So Lord willing, I'll be able to have them get all shipped out by Wednesday, and um, and then we'll start working on. Uh, subsequent orders after that. So you guys are such a blessing. Hopefully it's uh, enjoyable for you as well. Um, and uh, uh, we've got some just some fun things going on, guys. I'm, I'm so excited. Uh, just behind the scenes, a lot of things are happening. So I just want to encourage you to um, be able to talk about it here in the, in the following weeks as we get closer to June. But um, uh, just some really cool things. So uh, just be encouraged. But tonight, let's jump into First Enoch because I think this book is pretty fascinating for the times that we're in. It's, it's truly, it's really fascinating. So we left off last week at the end of chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at chapters 11 through 15 this time. Now in the study guide, as you can see here, I actually have 11 through 12 completely um, there because they're much smaller chapters. I have them actually formatted here on the same page. And so that way um, it's just kind of trying to save some space, if you will. So that's why we have uh, verse 1 starts here of chapter 11. There's just two verses in chapter 11 from the fragmented scrolls. And then we've got verse 1 of chapter 12 starts off right below it. So, and um, and as always, we've got the color coding next to the, the context paragraphs. To, and we're going to explain uh, the color coding as we go. Now, in the actual book itself, um, I explain at the beginning of the book, I explain the color coding. So people can, can read through that when they have time, the different... Uh, points of context that are all throughout all of the scriptures. This isn't just for the book of Enoch. These color-coded points of context go through all of scripture 
uh, that that harmonizes with itself as far as the same themes are being preached and spoken about over and over and over again. It's it's pretty amazing that they're just like um, continually, you know, the, the son of the father, which is the Messiah, prophecies about him, descriptions about him, concepts relating to him, uh, return of the king. That's his second coming, not his uh, lowly, humble first coming, riding on a donkey, right, where he, he faced um, slander, death, murder, persecute, you know, persecution unto murder, and uh, was in the heart of the earth for three days, resurrected into glorification. So that was his first coming. So the, the return of the king is actually spoken about seven times more in prophecy than the Messiah's first coming. So it's the second coming that is a huge point of context. Um, then we also talk about the resurrection, the covenants, the creation model, uh, the eternal Torah, which that word Torah, guys, it's not a scary word. It simply means God's instructions. So as disciples of Christ, as disciples who have faith in the Son of God for our atonement and salvation, we learn through his instructions. That's the point of being a disciple. So that's all that word Torah means. For those of you who may be new and never heard that word before, or you think it somehow has something to do with Judaism, it doesn't. It has everything to do with you being created by a holy and wonderful God who loves you and gave you instructions in order how to behave as a part of his creation. And so this is what is uh, continually spoken about all throughout the scriptures is the instructions on how to behave properly. So one second real quick, guys. Let me uh, let me jump into my settings and see if I can't fix some things real quick. Okay, that may be a little bit better. So ultimately, though, this is this is how the, the study guide is laid out um, in order. That's what all the color coding means in case you're new to this. Okay, so let's go back to chapter 11 and we'll see. We'll pick back up for this week. And we'll continue the story. So here in chapter 11, it says, In those days I will open the store chambers of blessing which are in the heaven, so as to send them down upon the earth over the work and labor of the children of men. And truth and peace shall be associated together throughout all the days of the world and throughout all the generations of men. So this is, like I said, the, the book of Enoch is, is a compilation of fragmented scrolls. So as a result of that, some of the, like, like we have here in chapter 11, just two verses is all they can compile from the fragmented scrolls. And then they, at some point, one of the scholars decided, well, we should make that one uh, at this point in, you know, the sequence of all the scrolls. And so they, they named it chapter 11 at some point, but ultimately it's just another fragment from what they found. And it has very limited information, but it's wonderfully synchronous, synchronous with the other context having to do with um, um, the, the other context having to do with the, uh, the new Jerusalem. So this is the point of the millennial reign. And this is why I have a, a supporting verse here with the apocalypse of Baruch chapter 29, verse eight. And it says, and it shall come to pass at that self same time that the treasury of manna shall again descend from on high and they will eat of it in those years, because these are they who have came, who have come to the consummation of time. So there's a, a phrase, this consummation of the ages or consummation of the time that Baruch uses, Ezra's uses, I believe, uh, First Enoch uses. And this is a phrase that has to do with the return of the king, the second coming. So I, I always try to remind folks that, you know, this is um, one of the huge thematic pieces all throughout scripture. And here in First Enoch chapter 11, 
It's trying to say in those days, he's going to open the store chambers of blessing, which are in the heaven above. Remember, we have a working definition for what the heaven is. It's the firmament and the multiple layers of the firmament that were created above the earth, which is where the angels and the father live. It's where the new Jerusalem, the city of God, the one that's in the temple within it, right? The, the things that are up there that are considered the temple of God, the city of God, the multiple temples, uh, like a lot of people aren't familiar with those, those concepts until you do a deep dive study. But all the things pertaining to heaven above, the multiple layers, the angels, their abodes, the Father and the Son, the multiple temples, the New Jerusalem, all that is up in the heaven above the earth, okay? Above the, the dome that was created on day two that encloses the land of the earth where we live. And this is saying that the chamber of blessing is going to come back down out of the heaven and send them down upon the earth over the work and labor of the children of men. And to my understanding, as a part of the New Jerusalem, this will be one of the food sources that will be abundantly prevalent on the earth once the new Jerusalem descends. Now, we're going to talk about Leviathan and Behemoth once we get to chapter 60. But here, a great parallel for this is Apocalypse of Baruch, chapter 29, verse 8, where it talks about at this time when people have the generation that is still alive at the second coming, which is considered the consummation of the ages or the consummation of time. Because why? Because this is when the kings of the earth, the wicked, are judged, and it is the fulfillment of the end of this lawless period. And then the father and son and their house descend to the ground. We have the beginning of the millennial reign, which begins a new age of lawfulness, right? Where the whole world will be taught the instructions for right and good behavior, which is called his Torah. This is what Isaiah 2, 2-5 through explains as well. What it's saying, guys, is during this time, just like in the Exodus, where people were brought out of the nation, where they had a normal city, a normal life, storages of food, a working economy, they had markets to go buy food and bread at. They didn't have any of that when the children of Israel came out of the Exodus, and God provided from heaven manna that fell on them to give them substance. In the same way, all the survivors of the day of the Lord, this massive cataclysmic day where the Son of Man comes back, with warrior angels, and they're going to fight the Battle of Armageddon, which is the amassed armies that are allegiant to the first and second beast. They're going to fight all those and overcome them, of course. And on that day, there's going to be a massive earthquake that Isaiah 25 or verse 30, Isaiah 30, 25 talks about, as well as, um, I think I got that backwards, Isaiah chapter 25, verse 30. And then as well as Revelation 16, 18 talks about a massive earthquake. The whole world will feel all the cities of the nations will crumble. So there will be a massive amount of refugees that do not have normal food and water. They're going to gravitate and come to the 1500 tall, 1500 mile tall new Jerusalem for food and water and provision. And they also have to show up for judgment as well, but that's a, you know, it's going to be the little bit consequence of why they're already there. Right. But in order for them to get there and once they get there, they got to be sustained until they're judged. And then those who are considered sheep that are kept, those are going to be continue to live and repopulate the earth and they have to be fed with something. But all, you know, a large portion of the world's food sources have been destroyed. A large portion of the world's storehouses, the cities of the nations are also have been destroyed. The father has already, he already knows this is going to happen, right? He's Isaiah 42, 10. He's the, the God that sees the end from the beginning. Therefore, he's already prepared that he's going to drop manna again. In addition to having Leviathan and behemoth as a food source, in addition to having medicine, free healthcare from being made from the, the trees of the river of life, excuse me, from the leaves of the trees of the trees of life going alongside the river of life. And in addition to this wonderful, beautiful water that's going to come out of the new Jerusalem, that's going to help 
uh, refresh the water courses of the earth, as Ezekiel 47, 12 talks about. So amazingly good water for you, medicine for you, well, well, for those who survive, who not, who, those who are regular mortals who did not take part in the first resurrection, that happens at the moment Yeshua returns, but they live through all this and they found themselves seeking refuge at the Father's house, which is his new Jerusalem. They're going to get that refuge. And literally, he's telling them, just, just like in the days of Exodus, he's going to drop manna again, because we don't know how long it's going to take to repair some fields for planting. So the Father is literally bringing down a house full of food to help people survive. So people always ask me all the time, they're like, Sean, how do you know the new Jerusalem is going to be on the earth at the start of the millennial reign and not at the end? And I, and I try to remind them all the details that I just shared with you for the last five minutes. So that if the new Jerusalem doesn't come down, the people will die because the whole world, whole world is being disrupted. All the cities of the nations have crumbled due to a massive earthquake. You already had three and a half years of the first and second beast persecuting the people of the earth, causing massive war, plague, starvation, disease. This is what the, the four horsemen in Revelation 6 describe. So in order for there even to be anyone to repopulate the earth during the millennial reign, normal people that live outside the New Jerusalem, there has to be a city of provision that shows up and comes down. In addition to the text directly telling us that's what happens. I mean, and we try to go through those texts as well. But, you know, this is this is one of them that lends to that idea, you know, when you put all the pieces together. But there's other texts that directly tell you. I mean, like this is like I, I mentioned Ezekiel 47 earlier. So, I mean, it directly tells you that the father's house. I know a lot of people get confused because of Revelation 20 and 21. They don't understand that Revelation 20 kind of finishes telling the story from the return of Yeshua all the way to the end of the millennial reign, but then it backs up and describes the massive house that comes down at the beginning of the millennial reign for two whole chapters, right? To tell you what the world, how the world is going to be different and what people are going to be interacting with, where the city of righteousness is going to be positioned in order for all peoples to gather to it and learn right behavior. So they stop sinning. They stop doing the behaviors of the enemy and they start doing the behaviors of the father and the son. So it's, we've tried to say this so many times that, there will be no millennial reign unless the new Jerusalem is already descended to the ground at the beginning of it, because it's how the people survive. They come to it for food and water and provision. So just keep that in mind as, as uh, we see hints of this, as we get to context passages that talk about the, the new Jerusalem. So let's keep going here in um, chapter 12. One second. We'll start here in chapter 12. So it says, before these things, Enoch was hidden, and no one of the children of men knew where he was hidden. Now remember, this is a different scroll. This is a different chapter. It's chapter 12, okay? Before these things, Enoch was hidden, and no one of the children of men knew where he was hidden and where he abode and what become of him. His activities had to do with the watchers, and his days were with the holy ones. So guys, whenever we see in Genesis 5, Whenever we see this, where it talks about all the days of Enoch were 365, 60 and five years, and Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. This tells you where he went. His activities had to do with the watchers and all his days were with the holy ones. And I have it under the context here of where exactly he went, <laughs> because it's actually in the Garden of Eden. So this is where I try to explain with the context here that Enoch was removed from the communities of mankind by being brought into the Garden of Eden. 
This is where he spent 300 years with the Watcher class of angels and received many writings. This is what is told to us directly in Julius chapter 4, verse 23. And he, Enoch, was taken from amongst the children of men, and we conducted him into the Garden of Eden in majesty and honor. And behold, there he writes down the condemnation and the judgment of the world, all the wickedness of the children of men. Now, verse chapter 7 of the Jubilees tells us that Enoch died. So I don't want people thinking that he's living forever. Again, that's where it says in both passages, he spent 300 years with um, with Enoch. So in, in uh, the rest of chapter 4 of Jubilees, it explains that, as well as here in chapter 12 of 1st Enoch. He spent 300 years, all of his days were the Holy Ones, after he was removed from amongst mankind. So guys, I've actually done an entire video on this, um, on, my, on Milk and Meat before, and I actually tried to explain that he lived a total of 665 years. Not just 365. It was 365 when he was removed from men so that he would not see death. This is what Hebrews 11.5 mentions Enoch, why he was removed. But we get the rest of the story from the rest of the scriptures, right? Just like you do that, just like so many other topics that Genesis mentions something, but then you get more detail from rest of the scriptures, right? So you get a big, a well-rounded, better picture of exactly what's going on. So for 365 years, Enoch was amongst the children of men as a righteous man and considered a prophet and a passed down a part of the priesthood, in my opinion. And then he was selected to be removed and put into the Garden of Eden away from the violence and the carnage that had been happening because of what we read from last week, right? Chapter 6 through 10. The rebellious watchers came, took wives, started having children who were unclean spirits, and these were meant for attack, oppress, destroy, and, and do wickedness on the earth and attack mankind. So... In order to spare Enoch from that, and order for him also to fulfill a priestly duty of being a scribe, where he would write down the judgment and the condemnation of the wicked world of his day, which actually was the was the affirming testimony that the father needed in order to enact the flood. He was protected by being put into the garden under the care of angels for 300 years. And many of the visions we see in the rest of the book of Enoch explains the many writings that he did, like Jubilees talks about, right? That the angel showed him how the luminaries work in the heavens, where the winds come from, the different layers of the heaven. That We're going to read in, I think, chapter 14 here. He gets to see the Most High's crystal throne. It's amazing. He gets to see this amazing house that the Most High is inside of. So these are all, of course, in visions. He doesn't, because he has a fleshly body, he can't literally go there, but he's being shown by the angels in visions how everything works and how everything is. And it's pretty amazing, right? He has 300 years to write down all that information. This is why the book of First Enoch, as we have it today in modernity, is a collection of six different scrolls. And some of it's actually not even his writing, supposedly. Some of it's the book of Noah. So, but the point is, all of it together is what we have left throughout history. And it's now considered the book of First Enoch. And that's why there's there's all these, these prophecy pieces of the fragmented scrolls that seems disjointed. But I'm just getting thankful that we do have what we do have because it's enough. What we do have tells us a wonderful story, gives us a beautiful description of the firmaments above and how the Father works and so much prophecy about the return of the Son of Man, the second coming of Yeshua. Um, so much explaining how he's going to stop the wickedness about basically the consummation of the ages. So um, this is just, you know. This is a wonderful little moment here in chapter 12 where it tells us he was taken back into the garden. You guys remember in Genesis chapter 324, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, it was at the anniversary of being in the garden seven full years. 
So at the, the first day of the eighth year, that's when they were tempted. They fell into sin. They were removed from the garden. And all the animals were moved with them as well. And it says at that time, it, the Lord shut the mouths of the animals so they could no longer communicate with mankind. So originally, they could communicate with mankind. Isn't that amazing? Um, and then also, I, I believe once things are restored, once the New Jerusalem is here, we'll be able to once again communicate with animals. I think it'd be pretty amazing. Um, but ultimately, this says in Genesis 3.24 that an angel was placed at the entrance to the garden, right? With the flaming sword making sure no one could get back in. Now, we're going to read later. We're not there yet, so that's why I'm kind of prefacing some things. We're going to read later in chapter 24 and 25 here in a couple of weeks about the angel shows Enoch, yeah, the tree of life. We had to remove that. It's been transplanted somewhere else, okay? I, and speaking of the word transplanted, I need to actually mention that because a lot of people, I'm sure there's people typing right now, but it says in, in Hebrews 11:5 that Enoch would not see death, therefore he was taken. Well, if you look at that word in the Greek, it's a word that means he was transplanted from one place to another. He did not just go to heaven. He was not given an early resurrection. He did not, he did not supersede Christ in getting the a resurrection body. Christ is the first fruits of those amongst men who were given an immortal resurrected body. No one else before him and no one else since him yet, not until the day of the Lord, not until the first resurrection event, will get an immortal body. Yeshua the Son of God, raised and glorified, is the only one amongst mankind that has been given an immortal body. Enoch was not given an immortal body in, in Hebrews 11.5 or Genesis 3.24, 3.23. Or excuse me, Genesis 5.23. So this is just, it's there's a there's a purpose for these words, and we have to kind of look them up. That's part of how we find context. Uh, so in, in Hebrews 11.5, it doesn't say he was um, taken to heaven. <laughs> You have to look at the original Greek. It's just that he was transplanted, right? He was taken from one place to the other. Okay. So this is this is kind of important, right? Because no one has no man, we're told by Yeshua, John chapter 3, verse 30, I believe. No man has ascended to heaven except the Son of Man who's already come down, right? So there's no there is no Enoch already going to heaven before Yeshua. Same with Elijah. I've done entire videos. If you want to go check that out in greater depth, it's called Where is Enoch Now? And it's on my Milk and Meat playlist. So if you just want to go to the search bar on YouTube and type in Where is Enoch Now? Kingdom and Context, press search. That video should pop up. So hopefully that's a, a decent little help to understand what we're reading and understanding here, what it's introducing to us, I should say. And this whole thing that we've been talking about is agency. So agency is where the, the angels are given the authority to speak on behalf of the Father because he trusts them. Okay, this is why angels were created, to help mankind. And it says that all of the days of Enoch, when he was taken into the Garden of Eden, his days were with the holy ones. Well, that's the angels. That's the good angels that are teaching him the right things and explaining to him the creation model, explaining to him prophecy about the end of days, millennial reign, the Son of Man, all the things, all the visions they're going to show him and interact with him. He's basically living in the Garden of Eden under the care of angels. And this is why it says his activities had to do with the watchers. His days were with the holy ones. Now, we know that some of the watchers transgressed, as we read from chapters 6 through 10. But these are the good ones that are still faithful and obedient to the Father. And there are millions and millions of them. So I try to explain that this whole concept of how it can say that Genesis 5, 23 through 24, 
Enoch walked with God. He was not, for God took him. Guys, every time we see the word God, it does not mean that it does not mean instantly we're talking about the most high. Again, that word is the word Elohim. It's I believe it's Strong's number 430 in the Hebrew. It, it means a ruler, either an angel or the most high. It can be either one, but it's someone in authority. This is the point of a there's little g gods, those are the false gods, right? false gods that try to, you know, push themselves on the nation to be worshiped, right? They're not truly gods, but they try to assume that title because they were considered the rulers of the people that worship them. The angels of the one true God, the angels of the most high, his servants who come to mankind and help us out. They're also considered Elohim. They're just not the most high. They are also rulers who've been given authority by the father to interact with mankind. And we need to obey those angels as they're sent by a mission from the most high. Right? So this is why in Exodus chapter 23, the father would explain to Moses, hey, I'm going to send my angel with you. Do not disobey him. Do not try him and do not test him because he's not here to pardon your sins. Like this guy is, is he's going to be a babysitter to you, but you do not want to test him. Right. And they tried to test him a few times and it did not go well for the people that tried to test him. So these guys need to be respected. They've been they've been commissioned by the father to come help mankind. And they're to be treated as if you're interacting with the father with the same amount of respect. It's called agency. They've been given that by the father. And so this is what we're seeing with Enoch being taken into the garden in order to, uh, to have his activities with the holy ones. And this is why they've been commissioned to help him. And this is that word. It, the translators are the ones that put G-O-D in there with the capital G. But that word in Hebrew is just the word Elohim. Enoch walked with Elohim. It's the same word as we would see in the book of first Enoch as the holy ones. Enoch walked with the angels in the garden. And this is why it talks about in the book of Jubilees. It says there, he writes down the combination of the world. It says, we conducted him. That's the angels talking. We, this is not the father and the son talking in the book of Jubilees. The whole book of Jubilees is being narrated by an angel to Moses on the 40 days he was on Mount Sinai. This is the angel speaking. We conducted him into the Garden of Eden because that's what they were told to do by the Father. Take Enoch, protect him, put him in the garden, and let him write down the condemnation of the wicked men, the watchers, and everything. We're going to read about that in the following chapters here in a minute. Okay? So hopefully that's a little bit clearer. A lot to, lot to kind of break down in that little moment there, but it, it's really setting the stage for what we're seeing with Enoch about to interact with all these good angels. But let's pick up in verse 3. So it says here, And I, Enoch was blessing the Lord of majesty and the king of the ages. And lo, the watchers called me Enoch the scribe. They said to me, Enoch, scribe of righteousness, go declare to the watchers of the heaven who have left the high heaven, the holy eternal place, and have defiled themselves with women and have done as the children of earth do and have taken unto themselves wives. You say to them, you have wrought great destruction on the earth and you shall have no peace nor forgiveness of sin. And inasmuch as they delight themselves in their children, the murder of their beloved ones shall they see. And over the destruction of their children shall they lament and shall make supplication unto eternity. But mercy and peace shall you not attain. So guys, what he's saying is Enoch is being commissioned to go speak to the rebellious angels and tell them, Yahweh knows what you've done and he knows about your kids. You're going to, you're going to, you know, um, you've you've acted like mankind and you've engaged in unrighteous behavior. 
and you've had kids and you think that you're going to attain forgiveness for this great sin. They acknowledged in chapter six that it was a great sin they were getting into. And the father wants Enoch to go tell them, make sure you tell them that you left your place. And this is Jude 1, 6, right? They left their habitation, their first habitation. These are the rebellious watchers, the rebellious angels. They came, took women, had children by them. And he says, the father's telling them, look, I know you, you love your children. These unclean spirits they created that are attacking mankind. The father's letting them know, but you will watch all of your children die. And that's what happened before the flood from the moment of Enoch leading up to the flood is a, for, for most people's estimates is anywhere from a thousand years to 1200 years. So th this thing did not take place immediately. It was over time that the watchers watched all their children die. And then they themselves would face their own type of uh, imprisonment, right? As they were sent to Tartarus. Um, but he's basically let, let them know, like, you can plead all you want, but I'm not going to forgive you guys for this. This was, you guys seriously are, you're literally trying to kill all of mankind. Like this is serious. I'm not forgiving you guys for this. So for all the atheists and agnostics out there that want to say, oh, that God is unjust, right? That he, why would he let this happen or do that? And, and why, and for all those people with this weird, greasy grace theology that says, oh, well, if he's, you know, if he's been a murderer his whole life, but on his deathbed in prison, he decides that he asks God to forgive him. He'll be in heaven alongside everybody else. I don't know, man. I, I don't know. Like, you know, the father says he's going to weigh your actions, every word and deed. He doesn't say, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, the, it's Yeshua's job to judge the heart in that moment. And I don't want to supersede that job. I don't want to take that job. He can judge him and I'll trust whatever judgment he makes. But I don't know. Some people may not get that prayer granted. You know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> you know, it's just it's something to consider because that's not guaranteed that you're just going to be able to live an entire life of destruction and then suddenly in your deathbed ask for mercy. And the Father's going to know if you're being genuine or not, right? If you truly had a moment of heart change or repentance or if you just are trying to avoid punishment. And we're about to see the same type of strangeness happening when Enoch goes and tells these watchers this message, and then they in turn plead with him to go back and beg for mercy to the Most High. Obviously, Enoch can't go see the Most High, but he's talking with the good angels in the garden. That's the conduit where this communication is being relayed. So, yeah, it's just... But he's letting them know right off the bat, you're not going to get forgiveness, and your children will die, right? They're not going to live in heaven either, and I'm going to go on that here in just a few minutes also as, as far as him promising the unclean spirits will never live in heaven. So... Um, for all those who might try to say that if they, you know, and the reason I mentioned that is because there's a lot of people that they don't know where unclean spirits came from because they've never read the book of First Enoch or Jubilees. And when asked, they say, oh, well, they must come from God because they'll, they'll use the moment with Sam or with David and Jonathan and not David and Jonathan, but David and Saul. And they'll say, oh, an unclean, the, uh, from an unclean spirit from the Lord came to oppress Saul. And they think that, oh, all unclean spirits originate from heaven and are sent by Yahweh to people to test people. That's not, that's something that's taken out of context from the explanations we get of where unclean spirits came from in Enoch and Jubilees. And that's not how it works. It's just essentially the unclean spirits are always wanting to attack you. So unless he removes protection from you, they're always going to come after you and attack you. So it's, it's, um, it's basically, it's, it is super important to understand Everything that Yeshua had to deal with when he was walking around ministering on the earth and there were constantly people that were tormented with unclean spirits and he was kicking them out of people. Well, these books tell us where they came from and why that happens. 
Okay. Um, so it's very important, in my opinion, that we understand this, this back and forth that's about to happen in the next few chapters, where Enoch is now being told by the good angels that are his guardians, if you will, in the New Jerusalem or in the in the Garden of Eden. They're being they're telling him, Hey, I want you to go to the rebellious watchers and tell them, announce to them that they're going to be judged, and so will those sons, right? So they're not going to their wickedness will not persist on the earth. They're not going to win, basically, because they were trying to exterminate mankind. So Enoch's going to have to go do this. It's going to get interesting. It's going to get really interesting. So let's jump into chapter 13 real quick. And uh, let's let's pick it back up here in verse 1 of chapter 13. And Enoch went and said, Azazel. So now Enoch goes right to, in my opinion, the one who... He, he does this intentionally. He goes to the two biggest leaders of the rebellious angels intentionally going to Azazel first, because as we're going to see, uh, as we saw back in chapter nine, it says Azazel was ascribed all sin. So like he, it seems as if he had something to do with the other rebellious angels also falling into the sin they did and, and deciding to commit the sin they did. So I don't think it's any coincidence that Azazel is the one that gets a different punishment. He's the one that we still call Satan today. He's still roaring, excuse me, roaring around seeking whom he may devour. Um, he's not judged until Yeshua actually shows up at the second coming. So I think it's interesting that Enoch goes to him first. And he says to Azazel, you shall have no peace. A severe sentence has gone forth against you to put you in bonds. So just real quick, guys, in case you're not seeing what, what I'm trying to explain here, in case anyone's never put it like this to you, to help you understand the, the scenario, the context of what's happening here. Enoch goes to Satan to tell him he's going to be judged. I got to cough real quick. <clears throat> Has anyone ever explained to you that Enoch talked, had an encounter with Satan? It's probably because they haven't read the book of first Enoch. <clears throat> So to me, that's, this is crazy. Like we see that uh, in the Testament of Job, you know, Satan tries to, to appear to Job in different forms and, and intimidate him. And we see Yeshua talking with Satan. Uh, we see, you know, we see these different kind of concepts. Um, but rare, I mean, like how many people knew that you got Enoch literally just walks up to Satan and says, oh, hey, let me explain to you what's going to happen to you. Were there angels that accompanied Satan? Uh, were there angels that accompanied Enoch when he approached Satan? Was Enoch afraid for his life? Or was Enoch so full of God's wisdom and power and faith and love because he was a, considered a scribe of righteousness? He was someone that did right behavior. He was doing the Torah. He was doing God's instructions for right behavior. That's why he's considered righteous. And with that comes power and confidence. So it's no problem for Enoch, knowing that he's commissioned by the Father, to step out against the head adversary of mankind and walk up to him and say, Hey, let me explain to you what's going to happen to you. Like that's, that's a scene in a movie I want to see, right? That's pretty amazing. Now did Uriel and Raphael and, and Michael and Gabriel go with him as some massive big bodyguards standing behind him? Maybe, I, I don't know. It doesn't give us that detail, but I, to me, this is, this is an amazing little moment here in chapter 13 where Enoch is about to go up to these rebellious watchers. And guys, this is not 
right after they sinned. This is after they have control over the whole earth of mankind, in my understanding. This is him speaking truth to power, the most evil power, the same specifically as Azel, whom the whole world is deceived by even to today, and the kings of the earth are worshiping him. Enoch, let me walk up to this guy and tell him what's about to happen. That's that's the confidence that you get from the Lord, man. That would be what I would consider a gift of the Spirit, specifically called the gift of faith in Corinthians. Um, because he's just like, and nothing gonna happen to me. I know what's I know my faith, and I know how I'm protected, and I know who my most high is. I'm literally chilling in the Garden of Eden. Like I'm 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 good. I know that I can go up to this guy and I'm gonna be okay to return home. I can turn my back after telling the message and walk away. And he's not going to just run me through. I mean, that just think about the scenario. You get to walk up to this guy, to this angelic, powerful angelic being who's deceiving the world and teaching mankind the values of metal specifically for warfare. And you're going to tell him, hey, your days are numbered. And then you just turn around and walk away. Now, there's more to the story. Let's read. But I just I'm trying to set the scene for you. It's amazing. It's truly amazing. So it goes on in here in verse one, Enoch went and said, Azazel, you shall have no peace. A severe sentence has gone forth against you to put you in bonds and you shall not have toleration nor request granted to you because of the unrighteousness, which you have taught. And because of all the works of ungod of godlessness and unrighteousness and sin, which you has shown to men. So then I went and spoke to them all together. They were all afraid. Fear and trembling seized them. Now, real quick, guys. What did we just read? I just think this is fascinating to me. Look at this real quick. Look at where it says in verse two, you shall have, you shall not have toleration or request granted to you. What, what is like the massive thing that we see people screaming today, people that reject the ways of the creator that want to live in destructive, sinful behaviors. What do they scream that they want the world to give them? Tolerance. is the subliminal and, and subconscious cry of Satan and everyone who does his behavior, who falls into that mindset. They're screaming for tolerance. They want to be, how dare you judge them and not show them tolerance? Meaning they want to continue doing the behavior they're doing without being interrupted. How dare you offer judgment to them? How dare you say what they're doing is bad? This is just like, I mean, we're like, you want to see the fruit of a dead tree? You want to see the fruit of the enemy? People that are screaming, don't judge me. Why don't you have tolerance? It's the same plight that even before Azazel opens his mouth, Enoch says, you're not going to get tolerance, by the way. I mean, this is like... Guys, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen a tense drama before, but this is one of the <laughs> one of the most tense scenes I can think of in the book of First Enoch. Like this, this guy, chutzpah, right? Is that what they say? This guy had some serious, uh, some serious courage. Um, so let's keep looking here, and let's keep going down here. Um, verse four. It says, "And they besought me." Now, so he not only did he tell Azazel, but then it says in verse three, I went and spoke to them all together. So that's Azazel and Samyaziel and all the, all the 200. 
He says, they were all afraid. Fear and trembling seized them. Guys, this is how much they respected the agency that was given to Enoch to go give this message to them. This is backwards, guys. I don't know if you guys realize this or not. This is backwards. And this and the father's going to address this here in chapter 15. But this is backwards. This should not be happening like this. Men should not be telling angels reprimand and judgment. It should be the opposite, right? It's the angels should always have the good behavior and be justified in a position of agency to go and tell unrighteous men, hey, straighten up, judgment's coming or whatever. But this is backwards. So here in Jubilees 4.22, we see the same thing. It says, and he, Enoch, testified to the watchers who had sinned with the daughters of men, for these had begun to unite themselves so as to be defiled with the daughters of men. And Enoch testified against them all. So <laughs> to their face, <laughs> in your face. Well, I can't remember. <laughs> is that, I can't remember. Is that Eddie Murphy skit or Dave Chappelle? Like, yeah, I mean, like right directly to their face. It's crazy. So I just try to explain here the agency here. The rebellious watcher class angels ask Enoch to be their agent and bring their plea for forgiveness to the faithful watcher class angels who would in turn take it to the father. And that's what we're going to see here in verses four through nine. It says, and they besought me, that's the rebellious angels, asked Enoch to draw up a petition for them that they might find forgiveness and to read their petition in the presence of the Lord of heaven. For from them on, they could not speak with him nor lift up their eyes to heaven for shame of their sins for which they had been condemned. Guys, it's literally telling you right here, Azazel, Satan, the guy that's considered a roaring lion, the great dragon, as well as the other rebellious angels, they knew they were doing sin from start to finish. Enoch chapter 6 to Enoch chapter 13, from start to finish, they knew they were doing the wrong thing. And they continued and persisted in it. It's madness. It's it's absolutely madness. But this is what pride and rebelliousness looks like. Because what was the result of their persistent sin? It was the death of mankind. It's madness. So, to me, this is just fascinating. I mean, they... They, they all were afraid, they were trembling in fear, and then they see, and then they immediately turn to Enoch and they're like, okay, 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 wait. They didn't, they didn't doubt Enoch. They didn't say, oh, we don't believe you. They just looked at him and were like, okay, so can you go back to, to the angels, the presence of the Lord, which is the embodiment of the, the angels of the presence, as Jubilees 2 tells us. So again, Enoch is not literally going directly to the Father. He can't. He doesn't have a resurrected body. He still has a mortal body, born of a woman. But he's interacting with the good angels in the Garden of Eden who are who represent the presence of the Lord. They, they're the one relaying the communication. So the rebellious watchers, Azazel and Samyazel and the other guys, they ask Enoch, hey, can you, can you go back and uh, bring this petition for us on our behalf and ask if he'll forgive us? Because it says they themselves, out of shame of their own sin, for which they were being condemned, they... they didn't feel like they could even do it themselves. Here's the crazy part, guys. They could do it themselves. They could go back to heaven still. We see Azazel in Job chapter 1 and 2 presenting himself to the Lord with the other angels. And Yahweh asks him, hey, where have you been? 
we see that they could have physically, literally, they could have went through the layers of the ferment and presented themselves to the father and asked for forgiveness. But they were too afraid and too ashamed. They thought they were going to become a grease spot the moment they got in his presence. They knew what they were doing was wrong. So now they're asking a man, someone that was created lesser than they were. They were asking him, hey, um, can you please go ask for forgiveness for us? So guys, this is what I've talked about in the past about Enoch being a priest. And the angels themselves were priests, tasked, as Hebrews 1.14 explains, to go to mankind and help them, those who are inheriting salvation of mankind. This is what Hebrews tries to explain. One of the, the jobs of, of the priesthood of angels, right, is to go to mankind and teach them better Torah, right? Help them get better at doing the right behavior of God. In this weird twist here, we see these angels reprimanded for not doing what they were sent to do amongst mankind, which was to help them. They were sent not just to go ogle women and get mischief underway. They were sent to go help them. So this is, this is fascinating because now they look to a man priest, Enoch, and ask him to do a priestly duty on their behalf which is to ask for atonement to the Father, to represent them on behalf of the Father. Even though he shows up and the first thing he says is, you're not going to be granted any, any plea of mercy, guys. No tolerance for you. No soup for you. So it, this is just amazing, right? They're continuing to engage in futility. But they're still trying to use this system set up by the Father in order to do it, which is a priesthood. This is how you ask for forgiveness to the Father. You go to a qualified priest who can represent you and vouch for you on behalf of your sin because he hasn't sinned. He's better than you. So Enoch has not committed the sins that the watchers did. He actually is living righteously. He's living correctly as well as the other good angels, right? And so he's now asking this man. It's all, it's all flipped. They shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't be doing this. It's crazy. So this is a unique little moment here, guys. Very, very unique. So it says in verse six, then I, that's Enoch, wrote out their petition. So he's he's indulging them and the prayer in regard to their spirits and their deeds individually and in regard to their requests that they should have forgiveness and length of days. So guys, you know, I don't know if anyone's ever done this before or not, but there's certain... Uh, Many years ago, um, I went through a divorce and I went to something called Celebrate Recovery, um, which is it's like a, they they help you with all kinds of things, whether men going through divorce or going through addictions or going through uh, trauma or all kinds of things. Like, you know, if you have if you're hurting this, this concept called Celebrate Recovery is it's like a play off of the uh, the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 step, but they infuse biblical principles and it can be helpful for a lot of people. And at that time in my life, it was very helpful for me. And ultimately, I remember them talking about step four in their little program. It's kind of like a, a discipleship program that got its general premise from the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, basically. So in step four, they have what they call taking a moral inventory. And then you speak with your, you know, your accountability partner or your sponsor, and you go and you write out your entire moral account moral inventory, I should say. Basically, if you've sinned in your life, you want to write it all out. 
like the best you can, especially the things that has caused you great harm or trauma or caused someone else great harm or trauma. So then you're supposed to go share with them. And it's usually, you know, like a two or three hour conversation where you just go get it all out. You know what I'm saying? You go get everything out. You just, you have to write it down though. That's exactly what we're seeing here in first Enoch chapter 13. They wrote out their petition for forgiveness accompanied with individually all the specific sins that they had done individually. Why? Because these are angels of heaven who know the law of God. They know every single place that they transgress the law of God. By the way, as you guys, for those who are watching, the word transgression of the law is the definition of sin. That's why the law can never be done away with, right? So the, their transgressions specifically, they wrote them all out in regards to their own behaviors, and they gave them to Enoch, not, not for a 12-step program, but for asking for utter mercy from the Most High, because they know that... Um, this is gonna, this is gonna be basically there. Okay, let me put it like this. What do we see as a precedent all throughout the scriptures when a prophet shows up to people that are doing wickedness? What does he say to them? Nine times out of ten, he says, Repent. You're doing unrighteousness, you're doing wickedness. Turn, turn and repent. What do we see in Jeremiah chapter three, verses eight through twelve? Guys, I, I, you know, especially those in the Torah crowd, please read 8 through 12. Don't stop at verse 8 and 9. Read 8 through 12. He tells the southern house of, of Judah, if you repent, I'll take you back. But he calls the southern house of Judah more wicked than the northern brother that was already scattered to Assyria, the house of Israel. So he says, you guys came back, you know, to, you came back into me, but you were faking it because you weren't truly sincere. He's like, if only you would repent, I'll take you back and give you the blessings of the covenant. Jeremiah 3, 8 through 10. I'm paraphrasing. Please go read it on your own time. So the point is, that did not, this conversation did not start like that. Enoch shows up with these guys, and there is no repent. Enoch shows up saying, You're not going to be forgiven for this one. You're going to be destroyed, and your sons are going to be destroyed. It's it's chilling, right? These guys are trembling in fear because of this. They're, th this is a priest slash prophet showing up to them, not offering a chance to turn around and repent, but straight saying, there's no room for forgiveness on this one. You guys are going to be destroyed. So this is very, very interesting dynamic here, guys, um, that is unfolding here in chapter 13. So then it says, um, and I, that's Enoch, went down and sat down at the waters of Dan in the land of Dan to the south of the west of Hermon. I read their petition till I fell asleep. That's a long list of sins. Real quick, um, for everyone that, that may be confused, a lot of people think that this is an anachronistic, I think I'm saying that right. Um, is, that, is that how I'm saying it? Anach anachronistic? Oh. <gasps> Anachronism, sorry. Yeah, I don't know if the istic is, is a proper superlative, but it's an anachronism where they think that this is a reference to the land of Dan that's historically inaccurate. But guys, we don't get the origination of how the land of Dan was named the land of Dan. Just because one of the children of the children of Israel uh, was named Dan doesn't necessarily mean that's the first time that word or name was ever used. And in fact, to my understanding, I'm pretty sure he was born in that territory near Mount Hermon in northern Israel, where Abraham or where Jacob lived 
uh, with uh, Laban when Dan was born. So that make a lot of sense if they lived in the, the ancient territory, the land of Dan, that he would name one of his kids Dan. But it's just people, people, this is one of the arguments that people try to make against the book of First Enoch because they'll say, well, this is anachronism. This is out of place historically. There, there should not be a land of Dan before the flood because one of the children of Israel named Dan was not yet born. And I'm like, guys, the Hebrew people had a common, common uh, trait of naming their children after their, their forefathers in their family or after a circumstance or place where they were born. So, you know, this makes perfect sense if there's already a land of Dan, and then that's that's why, where that name even came from. But the point is, there is nothing that says the the word Dan or the name Dan only originated with one of the sons of Jacob, okay? So this is a, an assumption with that antagonistic claim against the Book of Enoch, claiming that this is an anachronism in this moment. So just keep that in mind. All right, so let me jump back into this. And so Enoch is, is reading this till he falls asleep in verse eight. And he says, I behold, a dream came to me and visions fell down upon me. I saw visions of chastisement and a voice came bidding me to tell it to the sons of heaven and reprimand them. And when I awoke, I came unto them and they were all sitting gathered together, weeping in Abel's jail, which is between Lebanon and Sinisir with their faces covered. And guys, this is a part where, you know, uh, a few years ago, we, um, uh, or last year, I should say, Ken and I, we reviewed the Testament of Job on uh, Honor King season three. And in that Testament, it has, you know, this, the continual trials of Satan trying to get Job, uh, get one over on Job. And when he didn't, it, you know, Satan actually comes to tears at the end of it saying that, you know, you're basically, you're more righteous than I, I couldn't get you to uh, sin in the way he wanted to basically. And, and it says that Satan tears up in this moment. And so, a lot of people, you know, tried to argue, hey, why is Satan crying? Like, you know, I'm guys, <laughs> think about this. How do I say this the right way? Um, the angels, Satan was an angel, okay? He was created as an angel at day one of creation. They are, I would posit, because of the way they were created, seen all of creation they, like job 38 7 talks about the angels of heaven the sons of the sons of heaven they sang for joy as they watched creation happen because they were created on day one and there's still you know six five more days of creation after that so if they're created higher capacity of existence their bodies are different they have a more understanding of the entire creation model how all of life works to, to whom much is given, much is expected. Well, to the angels, much was given. Much, much was given. They're made on day one, and they saw all the rest of creation happen. That's an amazing amount of wisdom, which it says in chapter, chapter 9 that we read last time. This is one of the reasons they were being reprimanded. They were teaching the secrets of heaven that men were seeking to learn. And it, they didn't have permission to tell it to mankind, but they were doing it anyway. And it's and it caused different forms of of idolatry, as far as astrology and constellations and things like that, and how they would uh, ascribe worship to the unclean spirits in regards to these things. And it was it was a it, it was they taught them the information not just because they were they wanted to help out mankind, but it was in order to corrupt them in forms of idolatry. So if you're an angel that's created in a higher capacity of understanding and existence. 
you're going to have a higher emotional capacity. Just as all the angels in heaven rejoice when a sinner repents, as Yeshua tells us in the Gospels. And likewise, when an angel realizes, hey, you're going to be destroyed from existence, you're not going to be able to live forever like you were intended to when you were designed, when you were made. And when you came to conscious understanding of that you were alive and you're watching all of everything else being created for the next five days, and then God rests and you guys celebrate your Shabbat and you realize this is how we live and you're happy and full of joy because you've been created that way. And you have this little younger brother, right? Last shall become first. You have this little younger brother created on day six at the bottom of this massive house that you watch be built. And you know, at some point, your, your lot may come up that you're going to go down on a mission and go help him out. But ultimately, you have a higher capacity for emotional and intellectual, just like they have a higher, quote unquote, spiritual capacity to deceive people with spiritual visions in ways that we can't quite quantify. But this is what happens with unclean spirits. And this, this idea, angels are a spirit. So just like good angels can show Enoch a vision. I don't know how they do that from a chemistry or physics standpoint. I don't know if they can somehow just reach into your DMT maker in your brain and turn on some DNT for a minute and give you a vision. And I don't know how they do that. It's how they're somehow projecting an image into your mind so that you understand things that you don't naturally learn through observation of the eyes or learning through the ears, but you're seeing it in a spiritual vision, like all the prophets receive, like people still today receive. So the, clearly they have a higher understanding of the creation model of how everything works and a higher capability than mankind. And with this, they're having a higher propensity to have more emotional capacity, which means when they get a judgment that tells them, oh, you guys are going to die. You're going to be wiped from existence. Your judgment is going to happen. There's nothing stopping it. And it comes from a credible source. They take it seriously. They're shivering. They're trembling. They're crying. They're covering their faces in shame. They know what they did was wrong. And at this time, they're sitting here weeping. It's, it's not uncommon, just like we see Satan with Yeshua get afraid when Yeshua reprimands him after that third temptation. He says, Satan, get out of here. And Yeshua letter tells the disciples, I saw Satan flee like lightning from heaven. In the same capacity that Satan can be bold in some moments, but he can be a coward and afraid in other moments. He can be indifferent and evil and wicked and heartless in one moment. In another moment, he can have feelings especially when they pertain to his own destiny. So it's not out of the realm that an angel could cry <laughs> or be frustrated to the point of tears, just like mankind become. It's to me, it's, it's, you know, it's just, not, it's just a huge assumption made that there's somehow these, you know, robots from heaven that come down with no, you know, that they're somehow androgynous and they're somehow pale faced and stoned. And like, no, they're, they're real entities with real emotions. So let me tell you guys a quick story. Uh, I think I may have shared this before, but um, some people may not have heard it. Several years ago, there was a gentleman that um, he was the director of the Bible school that I went to, but he later went on to create his own ministry. And actually, you know, maybe someday I'd like to have uh, an interview with him here on the channel. He has his own YouTube channel now. And uh, he's growing, and I'm I'm happy to see that he's uh, still preaching the word. Obviously, you know he's 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 been a lifelong believer, and he actually claims that he's had multiple visitations in his life from angels that have given him messages with answers to prayers 
that he was asking God for, for answers. And he told me this one story. We were having lunch one day. And he told me this one story about how he was mowing and he was on his John Deere tractor because um, he has some land you know, outside of the city and he was mowing his field and he was praying and he was at, he had been praying for months about his son who was in a wheelchair. Uh, he had some uh, health issues. His son, he was asking, his son wanted to go overseas to Africa on a missions trip. Well, guys, if anyone has any awareness of the state of Africa, you know, it's not always the best place to go as an American. Right. There's especially if you're going to like Nigeria, you know, there's a lot of kidnapping scams that happen and they try to ransom Americans back to their family and things like that almost happened to my father a few years ago. So he's praying for his son because his son's in a wheelchair. So as you can imagine, you don't want your kid in a wheelchair with less ability to escape potentially being kidnapped. Um, you don't want him going outside of your control. And, you know, obviously he was going to go on a missions trip with other kids. But he just was very hesitant about it. And he had been praying, Father, should I let him go or not? He said he's mowing his track, he's mowing on his tractor in his field, and he sees three angels show up out of the sky and walk down in front of him, like as if they're walking on a staircase that he can't see, down in front of him to the field. And he's at this point, of course, he's already stopped his tractor and sitting there, you know, watching them finish descending down to the grass, standing there in front of him, three of them. And he gets off his tractor and walks up to them. And now keep in mind, this guy's like six, six. So he said, for, he said he was taller than all of them, but he said the shortest one was uh, like, looked like he was like a young man, like 17 to 20 years old with blonde hair. And that he, uh, he was standing there as the obvious leader of these three angels that had showed up and he went up to them and, and the, the guy, the, the youngest angel looking kid guy said, said to him, he said, Hey, we just got back from Africa and it's okay if your if your son goes. And the guy's name is John. And so John responds because he's in just disbelief. I mean, obviously the whole thing is kind of shocking, right? But he's kind of in disbelief, you know, and he's like, he, he, the first thing that comes out of his mouth, he said was, he, 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 I asked, are you sure? And he said, the angel got visibly ruffled. Like he kind of like, straightened up, tightened up a little bit. And he kind of spoke to him very sternly. And he said, I told you, I just got back from there and it's okay if he goes. So, you know, I, I may not have remembered every single detail of that story, but what's interesting. And I asked him about this. I was like, so you're, you're saying that these guys got upset. I mean, like they got, you could see that you, that you're, you questioned him kind of messed with him a little bit and got him, got him upset. And he's like, yeah, I can see that I upset him by, by questioning him. Well, the, what he said to me. And, um, and I just thought about that and I was like, man, can you imagine being an angel and like all you deal, all you do is speak truth. You don't lie, you know, and especially if the father sends you on a mission and trusts you to go deliver a mission to mankind, you know, you, you're not going to lie because you don't want to turn into the watchers, right? Uh, as far as these uh, rebellious watchers from before the flood, you don't want to follow that bad example, right? So like you're, you don't want to lie. And so none of the angels are lying. They can't, I mean, they, they would never be trusted to go on a mission. They can't be liars. You know what I'm saying? So to me, it's just amazing um, that this guy, like, you know, his, his whole mission would be challenged by this human who doesn't know hardly anything saying, are you sure? And he's like, bro, I just got back from there. I'm trying to tell you, I, you know, it's okay. So that means he went there 
with the understanding of either preparing the way or making sure that everything was set up in with potentially other angels in Africa to make sure that this youth group was going to be safe when they went on this mission trip to that particular spot. Like guys, there's an entire army of celestial angels. The father uses every day to make sure your life keeps going. Think about this life. Everything in this life could kill you. <laughs> we are absolute walking liabilities. Everything, this desk could close on my head and destroy me. These light, the metal pieces of these lights could cut me open and I bleed out. This roof could somehow fall on me and I die. Like everything in this life is stronger than your skin, sharper than your skin, weighs more than you and can crush you. Could, you know what I'm saying? Like there's so many things that we could die from. But the father has continually has these angels constantly helping us. Many times we never see them. I think it's going to be like an amazing. I think it's going to be just an absolutely amazing moment when we are in the kingdom and we get to chat with the angel who like, you know, saved our life when I was 14 and didn't know it. Or, or how about this? When I was when I was 20 and I'm on my motorcycle and I'm at a stoplight and it's cold. And because I, I didn't have a car and I was like riding my motorcycle through the winter um, just because that's what ridiculous 20 year olds try to do. And I'm at the stoplight and it's cold guys. It's like, you know, 10 degrees out. And, uh, I got my coat on and my helmet, you know, and I'm trying to keep it revved up and I was coming back from work and the light turns green and I go and, and I, you know, flooded it and it stalled out on me and I'm stuck there and I'm trying to choke it and get the, but right after I stalled the bike, two large F two fifty trucks are racing through the red light. And if I'd have gone, I would have been literally, you know, creamed and just spread across the pavement just horrifically. Like I, I, when I did go home uh, later, my roommate at the time was like, dude, you okay? What's wrong with you? Look, why does a ghost? Like, what's wrong with you, man? And I was like, bro, I almost died just now. Like, I just, I think, I think God saved my life by stalling my bike at the, at the stoplight. Like I almost died, you know, and who knows? Could it simply be that the bike was cold? Absolutely. Yet I had already been driving it. I'd already hit other stop signs and stoplights and I hadn't died. So sure. Yeah. It just could have been, you know, user error, right? It could have been just the weather. Also could have been an angel that stalled my bike and kept me from being killed. So how interesting that we're going to, I mean, when we get to heaven, I promise you, we're going to have these crazy stories that these angels and be like, Hey, Hey man, let me let's pull you aside a minute. I'm, I'm so-and-so and I, I was commissioned to go help you when you were like 24 and you're, you were here and this was going on. And you remember why, and just, just to let you know that, you know, I mean, who knows if they'll get to tell us that or not. I don't know. The point is, I promise you guys, there are all kinds of moments in your life that the father who's angels, their whole purpose is to interact with mankind and to help mankind. There's going to be a ton of stories that we're going to hear, in my opinion, of how they did save us at different times or helped us or that moment that we were needing a breakthrough and we were praying. They were the ones sent to be the conduit of God's spirit to touch us and heal our hearts or give us the right idea to solve the problem or give us creativity possibly in order to create wealth or a business who knows because god uses practical means to deliver his power 
And this is just amazing that he created an entire army for that called angels. So there becomes a huge problem in the system that God created when some of those angels go rogue. And that's what Enoch is having to deal with in his day. Let's jump back into it real quick. Here in chapter at the end of chapter 13, um, Enoch goes and tells them after he woke up and saw the vision of the reprimands and chastisements, he goes and tells them all. And they're, they're here at this particular location, all crying and weeping together. And I'm assuming Azazel's there with them all. And in verse 10, it says, I recounted before them all the visions which I had seen in sleep, and I began to speak the words of righteousness and to reprimand the heavenly watchers. Guys, he spoke the words of righteousness to reprimand them. He is telling the angels of heaven, here's how you transgressed the Torah. God's just instructions for right living. The same instructions the angels have to keep that mankind is required to keep. Enoch is going to them and telling them Torah. Hey, you shouldn't have taken that woman and slept with her. Hey, you shouldn't have messed around with alchemy and tried to make an unclean spirit. Hey, you shouldn't have taught mankind how to worship demons. Like he's literally reprimanding them. There's only one way to reprimand someone in scripture. It's through Torah. There's one standard for behavior in all of creation. That's Yahweh's behavior. This is what righteousness is, is Yahweh's behavior. And so if you're being reprimanded, that means you're doing the opposite of Yahweh's behavior. So this is why this particular passage here, verse 10, is outlined in the blue, because it is the eternal Torah. And I try to explain it over here on the left, that reprimanding the rebellious watcher class angels by speaking words of righteousness to them would fall in line with the definition of righteousness, the right behavior of the Torah that will not allow some Yaza and those under him to return to heaven above because they're being punished now. And then we're actually going to read about, I won't read the supplementary passage because we're going to read that here in a few minutes, but I put it in there in case someone doesn't continue reading and they want to see it there. So if we go into chapter 14 now, this is, this is a, a different little moment. It says, The book of the words of righteousness and of the reprimand of the eternal watchers in accordance with the command of the Holy Great One in that vision. So now he's going to expound upon what he's talking about. Or what he's expound it to the uh, to the to the rebellious angels, the conversation Enoch had. We're going to get to see some of it here. Verse two: I saw in my sleep what I will now say with a tongue of flesh and with the breath of my mouth, which the great one has given to men to converse therewith and to understand with the heart. As he has created and given to man the power of understanding the word of wisdom, so has he created me also and given me the power of reprimanding the watchers, the children of heaven. I wrote out your petition, and in my vision it appeared like this that your petition will not be granted unto you throughout all the days of eternity, and that judgment has been finally passed upon you. Truly, your petition will not be granted to you. And from now on, you shall not ascend into heaven unto all eternity. And in bonds of the earth, the decree has gone forth to bind you for all the days of the world. And that previously, you shall have seen the destruction of your beloved sons, and you shall have no pleasure in them, but they shall fall before you by the sword. And your petition on their behalf shall not be granted, nor yet on your own, even though you weep and pray and speak all the words contained in the writing which I have written. And the vision was shown to me like this. Behold, in the vision clouds invited me, and a mist summoned me. And the course of the stars and the lightning sped and hastened me. And the winds of the vision caused me to fly and lifted me upward and bore me into heaven. So I try to remind folks that this, you know, going into heaven is going into 
uh, the ferment layers above. And this is what he's doing in a vision. He's not doing it in his physical body. But this whole concept of, of the idea of the Torah, this is why I have this particular little passage here in verse 5 outlined in the Torah context. From now on, you shall not ascend into heaven unto all eternity. And in the bonds of the earth, the decree is going to force to bind you for all the days of the world. So this is the idea of what kind of sin they, they had created from what we read from the previous context and why they would be cut off from their people. You guys see this? They are cut off from their people. This is Torah. This is why they can't go back to heaven. So what does it say in the scriptures when someone in Leviticus 18, 20 through 29 so that the land will not vomit you out should you defile it, as it is vomit out the nation which was there before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Well, the angels in heaven are their people. These rebellious angels, during the days of Enoch, can no longer go hang out with their people again and live there. Remember, they left their first habitation. That means their first place of living, their first house, their first domain. They left it, Jude 1.6. They left it, came down to the earth, meaning they left home. And they can't go back home. Now, we do see Satan go back and present himself to the Father. As it says at the, at the I believe it's a Poor translation in Job 1 and 2, and it's actually talking about an appointed time, according to the Torah. But he can't stay there. He's just going up there to make accusation real quick against Job. He can't live there again. I actually go over where Satan ends up living in my Investigating Babylon series, so I highly encourage you to check that out. But this is why the, the watchers of heaven are, they can only go back to heaven. It's Torah, guys. It's the law of God. Also in Leviticus 20, verse 6, the soul that turns after such have familiar spirits and after wizards to go whoring after them. I will even set my face against that soul and will cut him off from among his people. So guys, if it's bad, if it's bad that you would go after familiar spirits, the unclean spirits, or wizardry, or you know, necromancy, or any form of witchcraft or sorcery, it's worse if you create sorcery, witchcraft, necromancy, and unclean spirits. It's bad enough for men to fall after those things and chase after those things in vanity, but it's worse to create those things as these rebellious watchers did. So this is why the Torah applies. The same judgment of the Torah would apply, both Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. They can't go back home. They're cut off from their people. This is why you guys hear me say all the time that in the Torah, people always ask, well, why the death penalty? like in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 for false prophets and people that are trying to lead people astray from the covenant. You're like, why would there be a death penalty? Well, my first question would be, why is that guy still trying to live in Israel? Every Shavuot, it's, it's, to practice Shavuot is, the essential, is essentially you raising your hand and saying, yes, for one more year, I will be a part of this covenant with Yahweh. And I will be a part of covenant Israel, and I will do the commandments of the covenant, which is the constitution of Yahweh's kingdom. For one more year, I'll do that again. But when that person decides he wants to start doing the opposite behavior and transgressing that covenant and destroying that kingdom, why doesn't he just leave? No one's stopping him. 
There's nothing in the Torah that says if someone decides they don't want to be a part of Israel anymore and wants to leave, you got to keep them there. Don't let them leave. There's nothing in the Torah that says that. If someone wants to leave and doesn't want to be a part of Covenant Israel anymore, they can leave. But what, but what does Yahweh say? He's like, but when these people decide to start telling you we should go worship false gods and they still want to be a part of Israel, that's when we got a problem. They can leave at any time. If they don't like the way we do things here, they can leave at any time. But instead, they want to change the way we do things here and keep and bring you into that same destruction also. That's when we got a problem. That's when these people have to be cut off. So in the same way, it's the angels. They can't go back to heaven with this all this bad behavior they've been practicing on the earth and corrupting mankind, destroying the work of other good angels who were sent to help mankind. They're now doing anti-kingdom behavior, anti-covenant behavior. Do you guys know that the family of Israel, this, this idea of the righteousness of God, is the same covenant name of Israel, of heaven? All the angels are also in covenant Israel. That name just didn't appear with Jacob. Remember, it was given to Jacob by an angel. What God chose for Jacob to carry on the earth, that moniker of Israel. It's the same one, the same house of Israel. Not the northern house of men on the earth between the two kingdoms, but all of creation, people that do the covenant behavior of Yahweh, are a part of covenant Israel. So these angels, they want to transgress that covenant, but they don't want to leave. In fact, they want to bring mankind into the mire and the mud with them. So this is why they're cut off from their people. Okay. So in the same way, we see it also in Deuteronomy 13, 68. This is what we're seeing the rebellious angels do to mankind. It says, if your brother, your mother, son, or your son or daughter, or the wife of you, you cherish, or your friend who is like you, your own soul... If they entice you secretly, saying, let's go, let's go and serve other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have known of the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you, or far from you, from one end of the heaven to the other, you shall not consent to him or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him. So guys, the only reason this death sentence is being put in here, say, do not pity him, just like Enoch cannot pity these rebellious angels who are crying and asking for mercy. Because they could have just not done what they did. They could have just rejected the mission. If, you know, they could have literally, I mean, this kind of gets a little bit uh, deeper here, but they could have just lived where mankind wasn't living. They could have ignored their mission. They could have not went back to heaven because they can't live up there anymore because they're not doing this, the, the right behavior. And they could have just went and lived by themselves in some other land on the earth. But instead, they decide to create problems and get mankind to worship false gods and not worship Yahweh and start killing themselves. And then they create unclean spirit children that start killing mankind, whom were worshipped as the false gods. And they start hybridizing men and animals, corrupting the creation, the beautiful creation that God had made. They start twisting it in every regard. So this is not, these guys are not innocent. 
this father for the father to to have the angels tell Enoch, hey, tell them that they they will not be tolerated. This is not going to fly. There'll be no mercy given to them. Their sons will be destroyed. And they'll watch it fall by the sword, and then they are going to be just put in Tartarus, and, and eventually be destroyed. You'll be removed from creation via the lake of fire. This is absolutely the punishment fitting the crime. It wasn't enough for them to not want to do what the father asked them. They had to corrupt mankind in their rebellion. So this was this seems, in my opinion, more than more than you know, innocent transgression. This is not naivety. This is this is intentional. This is war. Guys, this is warfare. This is the same, what I would suggest is Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 24. It was the envy of the devil, Satan, Azazel, was his envy that caused him to hate mankind, right? To try to tempt mankind and get mankind to deserve death. And then he has some of his cohorts follow in line with him. So they, what do they all start doing? They all start creating circumstances by which men perish and their cries go up to heaven, as we read in verse or chapter 6. And the earth lays accusation against the lawless ones. So this is why in the same concept where it says the earth will spit you out, just like we read in Leviticus 18, 28 through 29, that the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, as the Israelites who came out of Egypt were going in back into that land that their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had lived in and were given, they are going back to repossess that land and the Amorites and the other Canaanite tribes that lived there were doing the wickedness of the rebellious fallen angels and their unclean spirit children. And that land was going to vomit them out because the creation doesn't work when people do that behavior. There's a problem. Guys, I don't think, I don't think the flood, I'm, I'm going to posit something as we go through there, go through this. And we're going to get to the flood in later chapters in Enoch, but I don't think the flood was the father. How do I say this? Um, it seems as if the flood is a reaction that brought judgment as opposed to the father specifically saying, okay, I'm going to judge in this particular way. It seems as if, and this is a little bit of speculation, but it seems as if the judge of the flood, where Yahweh's like, I'm going to judge, I'm going to flood all things, everything with the breath of life. I'm going to, I'm going to judge it. I'm going to flood it. Um, and we see the springs of deep come up, and then the, the fountain, the windows of heaven are open, and water comes from top as well. And but when we we start getting to deeper parts of Enoch here, and, and we look at the removal of the garden from the earth, and how that works, and what Noah sees in his vision about the actual flood happening. It's interesting. It's interesting because it's in the same, it's like in the same regard that we see Satan influencing men of the earth to destroy the earth today and cause climate change. It's almost as if something like that was happening on a grander scale that the flood was a reaction to. It's a little bit of speculation, guys, but I'm just, just throwing that out there as something to consider. But we'll keep going here. We're in chapter 14. So he already sees the vision. Now he's he's uh, explaining the vision that he saw here in verse 9. And I, Enoch, went in till I drew close to a wall. Now he's been taken up to heaven, remember, in this vision. 
He says, I went in until I drew close to a wall which built of crystals and surrounded by tongues of fire. It began to affright me. And I went into the tongues of fire and drew close to a large house which was built of crystals. And the walls of the house were like a tessellated floor made of crystals. My wife would love this place. And its groundwork was of crystal. Its ceiling was like the path of the stars and lightnings. And between them were fiery cherubim. And their heaven was clear as water. It's pretty interesting. And remember that the word heaven, it means the firmament. So the, the roof, the firmament, solid firmament structure over this house that, that encloses this house is like the firmament of heaven where it's clear. Um, in verse 12, a flaming fire surrounded the walls and its portals blazed with fire. And I entered that house. It was hot as fire and cold as ice. There were no delights of life therein. Fear covered me and trembling got hold of me. And as I quaked and trembled, I fell upon my face and I beheld a vision. And lo, there was a second house greater than the former. And the entire doorway stood open before me and it was built of flames of fire. And in every respect, it so excelled in splendor and magnificence and extent that I cannot describe to you its splendor and its extent. Its floor was of fire. Above it were lightnings in the path of the stars. Its ceiling also was flaming fire. And I looked and saw therein a lofty throne. Its appearances was as crystal and the wheels thereof as the shining sun. And there was the vision of cherubim. Now, guys, this is the R.H. Charles translation, and I put this red dot here for the word wheels because, like I tried to share in my video about Ezekiel, um, the word wheels from the ancient Greek is actually this word that can mean the ophanim because that is where the root of the word wheels in Hebrew comes from is the ophan. So this would make a lot of sense that it's not actual wheels, but it's these other ophanim angels, the ophan, or the ophanim would be the plural for wheels, the ophanim. Um, would be the plural for the the root word of ophan, and this is why I said look up the definition of the word in this in this particular one. Or I, I'm sorry, are there translator insertions? Is the literary context I put in here um, because that was the translator's idea to because he's thinking, oh well, it must be the word wheels instead of the original Hebrew word for ophanim, which is a class of angels that accompany the cherubim, as we see also in chapter seventy one. And that makes sense that they would be shining as the sun because these are bright angels. And it says, From underneath the throne came streams of flaming fire so that I could not look thereon. And the great glory set thereon, and his raiment shone more brightly than the sun and was whiter than any snow. None of the angels could enter and could behold his face by reason of the magnificence and glory, and no flesh could behold him. So I think this is fascinating because he's going to see this throne again. Um, and there's going to be angels going in and out. It's Michael and the, and the archangels. So whatever angels are here at this time, they're, they're not qualified to go directly into this specific room. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, it's just the archangels are allowed to go right next to the father. And in this moment, and remember guys at the resurrection, mankind is promised to be greater than the angels in their physical capacity. So just something to keep in mind. As we read something like this, we will be able to go up to the Father, just like the Son can go and sit at the right hand of the Father. We're going to get the same type of body at the resurrection that Yeshua received. I think we're going to be able to hug the Father. There will be no distance or separation. That's the point of His mercy granted to us at the resurrection, to get an incredible, incorruptible body that's glorified. All right, so let's keep going real quick. So it goes on to say, 
in 14, verse 22, the flaming fire. Well, I'm sorry. Maybe I should. Um, I Well, I've got the whole thing outlined in the purple here, in the light purple. That is uh, talking about the new Jerusalem. Because um, this same throne and this same whole concept here of the Father, I feel like we're going to be seeing in the new Jerusalem all this same stuff. This is my understanding of what where, where the Father sits. This is what's going to be a part of the New Jerusalem that comes down. It may actually be at the top of the New Jerusalem, but it's going to be a part of us being able to access the Father in this amazing place that Enoch got to see in a vision. So it's just interesting to me. Um, and this, of course, is what I would feel is alluded to in 1 Timothy 1, 13-16, where it says, I direct you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without fault or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he brings about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no eye has seen or can see. This is talking about the Father in this moment, right? So it's the Lord, the, the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ will be brought about at the proper time by the Father if that makes any sense, because the Father is the one who sends him. So, But it's the Father is being described as alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. And this is the same descriptions we have in here about the great glory that's set there upon. And um, the magnificence and glory is why no face uh, his um, could behold his face by reason of his magnificence and glory. No flesh could behold him. So this is... Very interesting, guys. Very, very interesting. Verse 22. The flaming fire was round about him, and a great fire stood before him. And none could draw close to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, yet he needed no counselor. And the most holy ones who were close to him did not leave by night nor depart from him. And until then I had been prostrated on my face, trembling. And the Lord called me with his own mouth, and he said to me, Come here, Enoch, and hear my word. And one of the holy ones came to me and raised me up, and he made me rise up and approach the door, and I bowed my face downwards. So then we're going to get into chapter 15 real quick, guys. Continuing in this same vision, he's explaining. And he answered and said to me, and I heard his voice. Fear, Okay, real quick, before we get further in, let me just stop real quick and, and make sure everyone's following. Um, remember who he's talking to. Remember the context of why he's explaining this vision. He's telling... He's reprimanding the angels who sinned, the watchers in the days of Enoch, that took wives, had the unclean spirit, Nephilim children, corrupting mankind and destroying mankind. What would angels need in order to believe a message from a man who's never been to heaven? They would need details. Moderators, if you guys could grab, grab the spam in the chat, I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Um, if the if the rebellious angels had Enoch come up to them and say, "Hey, guys, you're going to get judgment. This is the idea," they could have been like, "Prove it. How do we know that you're real? How do we know that? How do we know that what you're saying is? How do we know you were truly sent by our our former brethren, the the good angels, and under the authority of God Himself? How do we know that the Almighty?" that you carry the, the reprimand and the judgment of the Almighty, mere mortal human. They could have responded to him like that. He needed proof. 
father gave him a vision with all this grand detail that he's now relaying to the angels he's reprimanding. This is, oh, by the way, I've seen the great throne that the great glory sits on, where the same thing that these angels had probably seen at some point. They could have been in the crowd of angels that couldn't approach the father. And here is this mortal man describing the scene to them, of which he's never physically capable of going. Enoch has not been to the most highest throne. He's seen it in a vision. This is validating the word of the prophet in the view of these rebellious angels. So they would be right to believe everything that Enoch says. There's no way that Enoch could have known this unless he truly had a vision from God and was being given authority from God. This is a, this is a, there's a reason for all this guys. This is just not arbitrary um, prophecy put in here or, or just visions. There's, you know, there's a reason why he would be showing this. So it's very, very fascinating to me. So in verse 15, or excuse me, chapter 15, Enoch continues. He says, he answered and said to me, I heard his voice. Fear not, Enoch, righteous man and scribe of righteousness. Approach here and hear my voice. Go say to the watchers of heaven who have sent you to intercede for them. You should intercede for men and not men for you. For what reason have you left the high, holy and eternal heaven and lain with women and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men and taken to yourselves wives? and done like the children of earth and begotten giants as your sons. All right, a couple, th couple things in this passage I just want to point out here. One is the high, uh, holy, and eternal heaven, right? This is a direction. This is up, down, left, right. This is directions, guys. This is directional, the high heaven. What's the heaven? It's the firmament. It's a solid structure with multiple levels where the angels and the Father live, above where the earth is enclosed by its own firmament. What's holy? Set apart. That there's only one definition of holy. That's those who do the behavior of Yahweh. That is set apart behavior. That's good behavior, righteous behavior. What is eternal heaven? This means there was no ice canopy that melted. There is no ball in space. There's no sun in space. There's no vast void of space with multiple planets and galaxies and nebula gas giants. This is an enclosed structure with multiple layers like a big seven-story house. It is the structure of the firmament that was called heaven that God says is never going away. It's not some ice canopy that melted at the flood. It's eternal. The house he built that, that holds all of creation is never going away. The high direction above the earth, holy, set apart, they do the Torah, eternal, never going away, always there, whether you believe it or not high, holy, and eternal heaven. So he re he recounts what they've done. This is the father speaking to Enoch, telling him what to say to the watchers, how to reprimand them. And that it says the father is saying that they begot giants. These are the, the Nephilim, their offspring, that were unclean spirits by nature, but their stature, their size, was bigger than the average person. And that's what you would do if you're creating a ruling force. If you want to have power over mankind and subjugate them, you would create replicas of yourself as unclean spirits, but also make them physically bigger, stronger, so they can oppress mankind. And that's exactly what the lawlessness that was happening that we read about back in 6 through 10. 
Yahweh goes on to say, and though, speaking in reprimand to the watchers via Enoch, and though you were holy, that means you did used to do the Torah, you were spiritual, that also means you used to do the Torah, right? Because remember what we're told, that the to be spiritual is to subject yourself to the law of God in Romans 5, 8 through, Romans 8, 5 through 8. So they were set apart, they did have a purpose and a mission, and they did do the behavior of the spiritual, right? They did do the law of God. And they were living the eternal life because they used to live in heaven. But it says, you have defiled yourselves with the blood of women and have begotten children with the blood of flesh. And as the children of men, you've lusted after flesh and blood. You've also done like those who die and perish. Therefore, I've given men wives. Therefore, have I given men wives also that they might impregnate them and beget children by them that nothing that therefore nothing might be wanting to them on earth. He said, now there's a juxtaposition. He's saying, look, I gave men wives so that they could have children and they could be fulfilled. But you, these rebellious angels, Yahweh says to them, you, you're not men. You were formerly spiritual, living the eternal life and immortal for all generations of the world. And therefore, I have not appointed wives for you. For as for the spiritual ones of the heaven, in heaven is their dwelling. So there were no female angels, guys. Just want to throw that out there real quick. There's no, there's no female angels. And at the resurrection, mankind gets an eternal immortal body, like Jesus tells us in Luke 20, 36, which will be made like the angels. So this is why he says in Matthew 22, 29 and 30 to the Sadducees asking about, you know, whose, whose wife will she be at the resurrection? If this lady had seven husbands when she was alive, she'll be no one's wife. No one marries or is given in marriage after the resurrection. When you get your eternal body, and you are immortal for all the ages of the earth. You don't, just like the angels, you become like the angels and you, you don't marry each other. So this is why women were coveted by the angels when they came down to the earth and they saw some, some cuties, right? So they were like, oh, who are these? We didn't get these. Mankind got these. That's why it says in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, that these sons of, man, uh, sons of God, they lusted after the daughters of men and took wives for whomever they chose. There were no female angels created. It was not apportioned to them. It was not how they were created. They were not supposed to have wives. They were supposed to be ministers of the Father dedicated to serve mankind on the earth below. This is what I try to talk about in, um, in times past where I said this was the test of angel, angel kind. Mankind's test was you were created with limited information, obey the Father in faith, and then he'll give you all the information at the resurrection. Have faith. Until you die, he'll glorify you, let you live forever with him in his house, and give you greater authority than the guy who was created before you, the angels. The angels' test was you get everything right off the bat, except a wife. You get everything right off the bat. You get all knowledge. You get understanding of the creation model. You get this amazing job, power. Way, you get all this provision way beyond what mankind received. They had knowledge, wisdom, and power and purpose and closeness with the creator himself. You get that from day one to all these angels, but you you don't get to copulate. You don't get to have sex. Only 200 out of millions and millions and potentially billions of angels, only 200 of them did not like that deal. Guys, I want you to be encouraged. Millions, possibly billions of angels did like that deal. They were like, okay, I'm okay with not having a wife because I get to hang out with the most high. 
I get to be in his throne. I get to see this moment that Enoch got to see. I'm okay with not getting married and having kids. I get to live forever with the Father. But to mankind and to womankind, right? To women, a part of mankind, we live in this creation where we have to have faith that we only deal with angels. We can't go see the Father, right? It was That's why it was such a big deal that the Father would send his only son, his uniquely created son, that he would be manifest in the flesh, as, as uh, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, and so that we then see his son. It's such a big deal, right? That we, we're suddenly interacting with someone other than just angels. We get to see the son of the Most High, and he is the perfect representation of the Most High, Hebrews 1.3. He's the express image. He's the, ex the exact moral character. He's the walking embodiment of the Torah. And we get to interact with that, those who did at that time. But now he's our high priest, and he's given us this wonderful promise that he will fulfill the test of mankind, the promise to mankind to get us to that resurrection so that we can live with the Father and the Son in our house forever. So the test of angel kind was how do we refrain from the temptation of not having a wife, but mankind gets a wife? Well, it's not a problem if you're in heaven all the time, chilling, doing what you're supposed to do, enjoying the fellowship and re being renewed by the Spirit of God and the power that flows to all of heaven according to all the right behavior that's happening there because it's all set apart. But it was when they came to the earth for one of their missions and began to lust and did not go back to heaven. They stayed and persisted instead of fleeing their lust and going back to heaven. Does that make sense? They failed the test, basically. And they didn't, like I said earlier, they didn't just fail the test. They went 90 to 90, from zero to 100. And we're like, not only are we going to fail this test, we're going to take multiple wives. We're going to have a bunch of spirit, unclean spirit babies. We're going to teach mass corruption. We're going to start teaching blood drinking. We're going to start killing things and corrupting the DNA of all life on this earth. They went insane. <laughs> they didn't just fail this test and, and start finding women attractive. They went full bore. Let's kill all humans. They went insane. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. So this is this is why can you imagine being created on day one with the fullness of the spirit of God in this eternal body, living in the presence of all the other angels, with the presence of God permeating the, the very air you breathe in heaven, and like literally just being able to go see the Father. And oh, by the way, the Son of Man's up there too. We see Enoch talk about that in later chapters. The angels saw him as well. So they knew he was coming at some point. That means all these guys that Enoch is talking to, they know who's going to eventually be the one that that judges them and sentences them to the lake of fire. It's going to be the son of man. So like, there's a, there's a lot going on here in the mindset of this conversation here that Enoch is proving to these rebellious angels, why they should be trembling and afraid, why they should be um, expecting the follower, the father to follow through with this judgment because he he's, he's proven to them that he truly is sent by the father to re reprimand them. So he goes on in here in verse um, verse 5. Therefore I have given men also wives that they may impregnate them and beget children by them that nothing 
Therefore, nothing might be wanting to them on earth. But you were formerly spiritual, living the eternal life and immortal for all generations of the world. And therefore, I've not appointed wives for you. For as for the spiritual ones of heaven, in heaven is their dwelling. And now the giants who are produced from the spirits of f- and flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth. Here's your definition, guys. Where do unclean spirits come from? Right here. Evil spirits upon the earth. I also put a literary point of context there with the purple. Compare use in other books. Okay, so it's also in Jubilees. Uh, we see that they're called evil spirits on the earth right here. Unclean demons. This is where they came from. And also it's, you know, in Matthew 4, 24, uh, those who are possessed, um, were possessed with devils. This is this is where this concept came from. This is the Nephilim, and this is why I have them outlined in gray in the study guide is the Nephilim. They were produced, even though their original bodies were bigger than normal mankind, they were not normal men on the inside. Their spirits persisted even after their bodies died. So they should be called unclean spirits upon the earth, and on the earth shall be their dwelling. They can't go to heaven. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies because they are born from men and from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on earth and evil spirits shall they be called. As for the spirits of heaven, in heaven shall be their dwelling. But as for the spirits of the earth, which were born upon the earth, talking about these unclean spirits, on the earth shall be their dwelling. And the spirits of the giants afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle and work destruction on the earth and cause trouble. They take no food, but nevertheless they hunger. They thirst and they cause offenses. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of men and against the women because they've proceeded from them. So we're getting a working definition, guys, of where demons, devils, unclean spirits, their purpose, they afflict, they destroy, they oppress, they attack, they do battle, they work destruction on the earth and cause trouble. These were not created to be friendly. These were malignant, created in order to destroy, as Noah says in Jubilees chapter 10. These were not, these were not made to be friendly. There is no the familiar spirits are not your dead uncle and pappy. They're impersonating your uncle, pappy, or whomever, your aunt, grandma, or whatever. That's why they're called familiar spirits. They can impersonate your dead family members to trick you, deceive you. It's a part of their attack against you. Guys, you know, this is this is why Yeshua took authority over them. And he gave us the ability to do the same as long as we do the same behavior as Yeshua, which is to walk in his behavior, to walk in the righteousness, walk in the behavior of the Father. We can have authority over unclean spirits. So they, they have to flee from us instead of succumbing to whatever attack they're putting on us. I just also just want to say real quick, guys, you know, we've been talking about this idea that the angels um, took wives and um, a lot of people never even thought about that. There aren't women angels in heaven. Um, And I've tried to express in other videos in times past that Jubilees 1527, it tells us that all the angels were male because they were all made circumcised at their creation. So it's, it you know this is why I said it's their test is that they would come interact with mankind. Some of those would be women, not just men, and you know women can be attractive, right? So if these if the angels just like men are made in the image of the Father, the, the Father and the Son are described as men. 
you know, how, how interesting, right? Is that, um, in the occult, you know, they, they, they denigrate men and they promote female worship, goddess, goddess worship, you know, and that's what we're seeing playing out in the culture today where men are being denigrated as somehow inherently evil and, and women are being propagated as, you know, positions of power and influence and, and glorified in movies and TV and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, this is, this would make perfect sense. It's in a perversion of what the father created for um, men to be the leadership because men were made in his image. He's got feet and hair and a beard, hair and eyes of a man. He's a man. The angels look, they're all males. They're all men. But that doesn't mean they're inherently evil. <laughs> and I mean, that's a lie, obviously, from Azazel, right? It's a lie from the enemy to try to get mankind to be viewed as some kind of weird enemy, right? The toxic masculinity, all that nonsense. So it's, you know, this is why Yahweh himself was like, you know, I'm, I'm not giving women, I'm not giving, I'm not making angelic versions of women, but to mankind, they're going to get that so they can procreate. And when the angels came and they saw women on the earth, that was like a big deal to them. And I just hope the women out there that are listening, you understand that at the resurrection, you don't have to worry, like in, just in case you haven't put it together yet. Okay. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean, actually, let me take this off screen so I can, this feels important for me to clarify this, I guess. If you're a woman out there and you're listening to everything I've been saying, and the, the gist of this whole concept, the first few 15 chapters of Enoch is the, the watchers took wives from amongst men. Not only can they not do that again, okay, is it, uh, Samyazel and all of the people under his authority that did that, Azazel apparently didn't do that, but all the angels that did do that, they are taken off the earth. They're put in Tartarus. No other angel will ever try that again. Okay. With that said, at the resurrection, you're going to be glorified in this great, wonderful, eternal life. And you get a body like an angel. And then you get to live in the father's house where there'll be lots of angels. So naturally, I think women would be thinking, wait a minute, am I just going to be ogled by all these, these male angels for all of eternity? No, no, this was, th these are angels that are faithful and obedient and righteous. And at the resurrection, you are made higher than the angels. You're given greater authority and power. You will rule over the angels of heaven and govern them. You, mankind is glorified like Yeshua was glorified above the angels in authority. So they're, they're not going to be able to, they're not going to be able to, um, do ever do this again. And no, I don't, I don't think that they're going to be tempted because it's going to be, you know, um, not only we have your robes of righteousness, but you, I mean, you're, you'll be in a position of authority of them. So it's a little different dynamic basically. Um, as well as if we, if we take seriously, I think it's the Testament of Simeon. Um, in the prophet, in the Testament to the Patriarchs, it talks, I think it's Testament of Simeon, and it talks about how the angels are, or the women of the earth actually tried to entice the angels to lust after them because they thought they were, um, you know, attractive and powerful. And uh, we see allusions to something like that later in, I think it's the dream vision of chapter 89 of First Enoch, where it describes some of the rebellious angels. And we'll get there. If you don't know what I'm talking about, we'll get there later. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, 
takes two to tango, right? Well, that would make sense. I mean, there's a dynamic on the earth amongst amongst a lot of women, not all women, but amongst some women, there's a dynamic on the earth that they view people in positions of authority. They're easily attracted to people in positions of authority. Okay. Um, now multiply that times, you know, a handsome angel <laughs> who's physically more powerful, spiritually more powerful, has a greater mission than, than the man that's building the hut next to you. You got some issues here. So, but ultimately, you know, that's the point of the angels not sticking around. They're not supposed to stick around. They were supposed to go back home, but they didn't. So this is why there's problems. So, and also the angel is supposed to be righteous enough to, you know, reprimand a potential woman that would, would seek after to entice an angel to, you know, to, to consider some sort of encounter. But so, you know, guilty parties all around, guilty parties all around. Um, but ultimately that's just as an assurance to the ladies watching. I hope that you understand that at the resurrection, this will not be an issue. I promise. All right. So let me jump back in here real quick. We'll finish chapter 15. Oh, that was the end of chapter 15. Well, there you go. So there's a lot going on here, guys. Um, this is huge. And we'll, we'll get into 16 later, but this is Enoch listing out, um, the ways, uh, which is, you know, they've already knew what they did. They wrote a whole petition to him, but this is, as he's explaining this, this, uh, angelic vision to them, he's also explaining to them that he, he's getting he, his authority is from the father. Cause he's seeing a vision of something they would have seen previously when they used to, to be in heaven before they abandoned heaven to do corruption and destruction on the earth. And so he's being validated through this vision and also recanting to them exactly what they've done as a part of their judgment. And then we're going to see he continues to speak about it in furthering chapters. And we'll, we'll pick that up next time in chapters 16 to 20. So this, this is a lot in this book. There's a lot in this book, guys. It's, it's so interesting to see the history of mankind, um, the history of angel kind. This is a part of their history now. So this this was a huge testimony for all the the faithful and obedient angels to see what happens if they decide to mess with the fathers with the younger brother if i could put it like that you decide to oppress and and pick on the younger brother and kill your younger brother then you, you we got problems the father's got problems with you and he's gonna call upon the faithful older brothers to come deal with you so this is exactly what we're seeing we're going to see unfold between the good angels and how they go and, and exact judgment on these bad rebellious angels. So guys, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Hopefully it was uh, it was edifying for you. Hopefully it was good. And um, uh, I'm so just so excited. Hopefully um, this week I'm gonna have time to put together a kingdom cast episode. And then um, if you, if you don't already know, continue checking us out on Fridays. We're replaying our Investigating Babylon series week by week. And also, if you do want uh, a copy of this, it's um, you can get your own. Just it's the um, oh, that's weird. It's doing the it's using the blue in the book as a blue screen. But um, you can get your own first Enoch study guide if you want. The information for that is is below um, as far as the donations and all that stuff. If you want to use PayPal or PO box and just make sure you send a note that it's for first Enoch and just see the see the video description if you want one and let me know. Otherwise, for everyone that has desired one and uh, send us a donation, we'll be sending these out as your gift soon. It's immediately starting tomorrow because I'm starting to get them all in. So um, you guys are awesome. Really appreciate everybody. And um, 
We will see you soon. See you guys soon. But as the days of Noe were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noe entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be.